going into dangerous ground here because I'm going to talk about Russia, Ukraine, and the rest of the world. And we have a million Russians, uh, who people have lived there who've, uh, lived in both countries. I have not, but, uh, it was very topical. And I think it still is, even though there was an announcement of a pullback today. But, uh, just to put that pullback in context, at the beginning of the month, there were 83 battalions uh, lined up at the borders that was moved up to 105 battalions of, of troops ready to uh, act. And now they're pulling back. So I'm not sure what the numbers are that they're pulling back, but it could be uh, more of a, uh, a negotiating tactic than anything that we should react to, particularly the way the market is today. I think we're a long way to go before we get to a resolution of what's going on here. And uh, that's what we want to talk about today. So I think um, to do this, I enlisted the, the support of uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is a bipartisan group out of Washington, does a lot on uh, geopolitical uh, information, particularly as it relates to uh, conflict. So they think there's three big questions to be answered. What is President Putin trying to achieve? And uh, what options does he have and how might they invade if they were going to go that route? And uh, how should the United States and partners respond? So I'm going to take these pretty quickly um, and walk us through and and talk this through, because I think there are a lot of uh, there's a lot of confusion about what is really behind all this. And um, I think this goes back to something for President Putin, that he has a very clear um and I left off Putin there, I apologize, but he has a very clear objective, which is he doesn't want NATO to expand. He really wants it to be like it was 30 years ago or more, um, where the USSR is uh, pulled together again and uh, and that they could go back, turn back the clock, but that's not going to happen. So really, now these are the, the things they're asking for, which mainly are non-starters for anyone but uh, Russia. So I think this is going to be a bit of a challenge uh, from what he's looking for. Um, how does he go about it if he wants to go in and, and how would you do that? And there's really three courses of, of action. You can come in through the north, you can come in through the central region, or you can come up through the south. And each one of them has different implications uh, from a military perspective, but also from a geopolitical perspective. So their options are really sixfold, according to the uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies, and it really focuses on, you know, these are these are what they can do. And they did part of the first one today, um, although I wouldn't say that they considered the negotiations successful. Um, but I think they are going to be positioning themselves where if they pull back, they can say they're going back in to protect their people. And I think that's one of the uh, issues while they're doing that. Uh, they're going to have some rebels in that they'll continue to support, and that creates regions and reasons for them to go back in. But the first two of these options have the least uh, economic impact and would get the least response in terms of sanctions, but it wouldn't achieve uh, the goals of uh, of Putin with regards to NATO. The, all, all the other options bring major sanctions and economic hardship into play, <clears throat> and while uh, not necessarily achieving the goal of weakening NATO or decoupling the United States from their commitment to Europe. So that's not going to these aren't really solving the issues they're trying to solve for. I think options three through six <clears throat> really result in the destruction of Ukraine as an independent state. I think that's, you know, that's a real issue that, that is being looked at. 
Option three here gives uh, Russia would give Russia significant benefit of control of the country, but not the same economic devastation to uh, the Ukrainian people and to their economy. Um, so I think that's a, that's an issue. I think the big issue with four is cutting them off from the Black Sea is not a helpful uh, setup for for anyone economically. And um, I think that's a problem. And what you're seeing here is the response that that uh, the Western world had to Crimea being annexed is actually coming back to be in play here. Um, option six is actually uh, kind of the nuclear option. They go and seize all, all Ukraine and then try and form a new uh, Iron Curtain. And that Iron Curtain may expand, extend, and we'll touch on that in a minute. So just to look at the some of the challenges here, and what, what I want to point out is the rail system is very important to the actions that need to go on because this is a different type of battle than we fought uh, in most major uh, initiatives over the last several years. A lot of them have been around in the Middle East and uh, in Pakistan and, and the like, and where we're uh, Afghanistan, where we're fighting in uh, non-formal armies and not really uh, going into, you're going into cities, but you're doing it in a different fashion than a traditional kind of World War II uh, lineup. If you're going in to take over a country, that changes the, the, the dynamics of that and changes the thought process and logistics and other areas become big issues, which we'll touch on in a minute. <clears throat> so they've been laying the groundwork to portray uh, Ukraine as a uh, uh, as a nation that's lost and needs to come back in. They're really concerned about uh, the growth of democracy in that area, and uh, they're trying to set the narrative that this is a people that have been pulled apart uh, from their homeland, and and that's where it really gets complicated and and where a lot of these issues become big problems. So, what could be the justification for war? It could be failed negotiations. You could put the blame on the U.S. for uh, creating uh, disturbances in the countries and putting their people at risk, or you can just say you're doing it to protect the people. Um, we're not sure what his motivation is or what his preferred outcome is. We know what the preferred outcome is. We don't know what the realistic outcome is. And I think what you're going to start to see is if this fails and they do revert and they're going to go in, the process would be pretty standard. Knock out, use cyber attacks to knock out communications and dis, uh, create disruptions and distractions and then make communication difficult, knock out the power grids and create all sorts of uh, uh, communications problems. Then you go in with your air and missiles to knock out uh, uh, air force uh, defenses and defense systems, and then you bring your troops in. But to do this, and particularly as they're lined up to come in, you need the weather to cooperate. So really, what way they go will depend on um, how you can uh, navigate out of this and what your desired goals are. So I think the the really difficult option and the one that they'll struggle with the most is a full takeover. And the reason for that is uh, the timing of the year and the logistics and some of the other problems that we'll touch on in a minute. But it is a lot to go into a country and take them over, particularly uh, uh, one like Ukraine. And I'll, I'll just tell you there, <clears throat> these are the big factors that will depend on whether they can be successful. First is weather, and we know that the frost there is uh, a big part of it. It allows the uh, uh, 
tanks and the like to move quickly and cover a lot of ground, but you don't cover a lot of ground when you're trying to take over a country, particularly if you're doing it with, um, you know, pretty stiff resistance. So doing it before the, the thaw is going to be a big issue for them. And can they get it done that fast? Not a lot of that depends on the resistance they encounter and how that's played out. The second is urban combat. You know, Kiev has about three million people in it. Uh, some of the other cities have between one and a half and, uh, you know, eight, 750 and one and a half million people in it. And what we saw in Afghanistan and other countries as we've been doing, been at war for 20 years is it's very difficult to weed out cities. And when you're going through that and it creates a lot of body, body count and that creates some problems for morale later on. The other thing is this is a different type of battle and the, Russian military has been geared towards more hypersonics and naval capabilities and not as much these full ground conflicts. And that creates issues that um, they haven't really thought about or worked through. And then you get the logistics issue. And when we go to the maps, the further you move away from the rail lines and from the seas, the harder it is for them to support. And the other thing is after the first wave or two of fighting, you need to replace troops, weapons and the like. And that gets harder and harder the further you push in. I think in um, in Operation Desert Storm, we only traveled about 20 miles a day. I think it was the same uh, in a lot of the big movements in uh, World War II, that it takes time to do that. And if you're taking, uh, moving at that pace, it could be weeks before you can get through this. And that's where the morale issue comes in, because you have a number of regular uh, Army uh, soldiers and you have the people are, are, uh, pulled in for short term and they do not have the same experience or, uh, desire to be in combat that a full-time soldier would. So I think these are some of the issues that they have to navigate and they're not easy ones. And this is not, uh, it's not like what we've done in the past and, and some of the recent battles. So I think this creates a different kind of dynamic that we're going to have to focus on. So the last question is, how does the how does the U.S. and the Western world respond? And I think the issue is uh, really depends on what path he's going to take. But the key for for the uh, to protect Ukraine is to actually make this last. Um, the longer it goes, the more costly it is, the harder it is for uh, President Putin to declare a win, the harder it is to keep morale up, reinforce the troops and deal with the weather conditions. So I think all those factors play in time is a very important element, um, but it requires unity. And we've had some fracturing of uh, the NATO membership because they're all looking at different problems. If you're the new chancellor of Germany, you have a whole separate set of issues, particularly with your reliance on uh, Russian energy. So we have to see how this plays out, the changes that are going on. We're trying to focus on deterrence by punishment. It hasn't worked just yet, um, but we have to make the cost too high for Russia to believe they can proceed without uh, significant damage. And the damage for most autocratic leaders is the worst damage is not being an autocratic leader. So what do they have to do to, to accomplish what they want to accomplish and stay in power is part of the, the calculus that's being used. So if if deterrence efforts fail and there is a um, an aggressive action, then the sanctions will come in. They'll be quick and they'll be harsh. We can provide support to uh, the Ukraine army for war materials at no cost will give strategic advice, intelligence, humanitarian support and energy. Uh, we also have to provide food for them too. So the, the last thing they can do is 
continue to pressure Belarus to deny access from coming into the north, and that will help protect them. But it's a real challenge. So the way we look at it, we're going to have heightened volatility and uncertainty in the markets from not only this force, but also from central bank policy, uh, Omicron variant and the like. So there's a lot of uncertainty already. This creates a different level of uncertainty. Typically, military actions create a negative downdraft quickly and then start to rebound back. Um, but I think what's going to happen is uh, Russia will continue to do the jabbing and the saber rattling and instigation. Um, but since his demands are non-starters, he really needs to find a way to save face. And that could be an annexation of part of the part of the land, saying they're doing it to protect the people. But we don't know what it is because you don't know what the motivations are. I think we have really a, a lot of global risk from miscalculations, whether it's from central banks getting the monetary policy wrong, whether it's uh, political leaders getting the pulse of the population wrong, and it's from a geopolitical perspective with things like this and, and uh, uh, Taiwan and other areas that we're dealing with around the world. So we have some real issues, but one of the things that it seems like we're moving towards, and for those who read the book Clash of Civilizations by Robert Hardinan, you're starting to see this division of uh, the Western world and, and the rest of the world, and how does that play out, uh, is going to be one of those really interesting dynamics. And as I was doing research on this, I came across this quote from Churchill's Iron Curtain speech in 1945. And this is the world we're in today, where we're pitting democratic states against authoritarian ones. And how is that all going to play out? Uh, and could we end up with an Iron Curtain that includes, you know, Russia, China, North Korea, uh, you know, Iran, Syria and other Middle Eastern countries, as well as moving into some of the South American countries against the uh, what is now the uh, Europe and U.S. and Canada and Australia, Japan allies. So a real division create being created in the in the world today. And that's going to create some challenges. But for us, we think the escalation will give us a, a a better opportunity, but the volatility that's going to be present today, we think it's going to create some uh, very attractive prices for those who are ready to act on it. So I'll stop there, Mark, and uh, let the people who are really knowledgeable about the area speak, starting with Adam, I hope. <laughs> he's got, he's off mute. Uh, but now Adam will always have a comment, but any, just pre-Adam, any other, uh, any questions or comments on what Stephen just laid out? Stephen, is there a chance that authoritarian governments or authoritarian leaders really could form some sort of effective block where they would be able to cooperate with each other? It's a great question. I don't know if you, if anyone saw, but uh, on February 4th, there was a joint statement from the Russian Federation, the People's Republic of China, on international relations entering a new era and the global sustainable development. It's about a 5,300-word piece of uh, uh, President uh, Putin and uh, President Xi giving their view of the way the world should be set up going forward. And I think it's uh, it's quite telling. They they think the world is going through a lot of change, and they think the post-World World II order needs to be adjusted. So is there a chance? Yeah, but then what? Um, one of the things about authoritarian leaders is they don't want to deal with other people's telling them what to do. So how do President Xi and Putin, when they get past that stage, get past the honeymoon operate? So 
hard to say, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. Other questions? Steve, a couple of slides down, maybe four in, you had talked about um, one more, maybe. Um, I'm right there, the top one. Late, go, go back. Uh, top one, portraying Ukraine as a proto-fascist neo-Nazi state. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but who are they? Who are they trying to convince? I mean, you know, they're, they're their, own their own people. Us, their own, the their own people. Their own people. That, that's, there's a, that's there's the, a major battle for this for the mind of the Russian people when they're going through what what we would consider a really difficult economic period for an extended period, and and this is part of the the calculus that Putin has to take is how does he balance um, being a strong uh, authoritarian and a leading nation um, while you have people that are really experiencing economic hardship? Um, you have to create a share of mind. Um, I think they're doing that not just for the people, the Russian people, but for the people in those countries like Ukraine that are not seeing the benefits of a democratic system that are feel they're being left behind. And part of what Putin and Xi are doing is they're talking about the problems of capitalism to reinforce their their uh, their economic and political uh, platforms. So, uh, so it's really an interesting setup. So, so it's fair to say. Uh, so ordinarily, Russians' credibility, Russian government's credibility, wouldn't be all that great with the people. But given the fact the transition to the quote unquote democracy of the new government not going so well, there's kind of an opening for them to sort of claw back and. and Try to recapture some of the. Well, um, I, I'd also like to add they're also trying to appeal to Russian-speaking people, and I think Adam would have some insight on that. But they're also trying to speak uh, appeal to the Russian-speaking populations in these areas. Absolutely, like they did in they're, Crimea. Absolutely, they're trying to get the people that feel disenfranchised in the current system to want to go back to the old system, not knowing what the old system is if they haven't been back there. So it, the grass is always greener. Sure it is. Yes, Stephen. Um, I, I think I think your first slide is is like really really important um, because if and and you're you're also absolutely right that depending upon what his goals are is what will dictate the actions. And if the if your first three bullet points um, on the first one there, if if those are his his true priorities. Then, you know, I would say that, that this is, this is a lot of positioning, uh, in order to get those, those priorities accomplished. If it's the fourth one, then it's an entirely different course of action. Um, my, my, my number two here at the family office is a, um, is a Bulgarian immigrant. And he, he was telling me that this stuff actually happens like all the time. Um, in Russia, they, they always, Put troops on some border somewhere. A lot of it is is to bolster his image, you know, for the Russian people. You know, to to your point there. But a lot of times, you know, that's really that's really it. Uh, it's more fortification there. However, if you if you look at at what he's been saying, a lot of the arguments are exactly the same as what Hitler said about uh, the invade prior to the invasion of Austria. There was a strong, you know, large German contingent in Austria. The whole idea there was unification of the German people into a German, in, into a broader German state. And so 
you know, I, I think it, it depends a lot on, again, sort of what his mindset is and what the, um, uh, you know, what the ultimate goals are. The, the other, the other comment I'll make is that at this particular moment in time, if you look around the world, you know, it's sad, but where are the strong hands? You know, the strong hands are in Russia and China. The Western world, you know, the leaders there are just not strong. Um, even Israel, you know, is just not strong right now in the Middle East, you know, because of, of the political positions um, and the actions that they're taking or not taking with regard to, you know, aggressions of the strong hands. So, and we have one more comment. Adam's been chomping at the bit. Sure. Yeah. And um, to go, go ahead. And then we went Priya Downs is from London. Is I want her to sh- introduce herself, shed light on what she's doing in sustainable fashion. And then we'll turn to Gary Bowles. Adam, it's all yours. To me? Okay. Um, sorry, everyone. I'm going to let you down here with a rather boring question, but important question. Um, Stephen, is the market pricing in a Russian invasion? It's hard to say, actually. And that's one of the interesting things is there's so many different uh, forces at work in the global economy today that people are worried about. That you don't know how how much is priced in for this rate hikes. Um, you know, one of the fallouts from any military action here is going to be more uh, migration problems and 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 uh, migrants getting people being displaced, and that's been a big issue in Europe already. And if you start to see more of that, how does that play out? Particularly when you have weak leaders and. Um, there was just a Gallup study out for the U.S. that says our view on uh, immigration has gotten even more negative about it when it's absolutely what we need to have in the United States, as do most nations, because they're not getting the population growth. So it's creating some really interesting dynamics. So it's hard to say how much this is priced in, because we still have the inflation running at at, at record levels. You have a lot of uncertainty about where we're going economically. So it's hard to say how this is priced in versus everything else. But I think what you're going to see is this series of uh, reactions and actions that create opportunities that that's how you should play it. Expect a lot of volatility and play the, play the volatility well and stay with the secular themes. Don't try and time this short term stuff, particularly military actions. Uh, it doesn't tend to work very well. Thank you. I had a comment on the market marker too late. Real quick one. Yeah, so I, I would argue that some kind of risk premium is priced in because every time you get a good piece of news, markets jump. Now, again, as Stephen says, there's a million other things affecting markets today. But if, if you look at the actual at the actual Russian equity market or the ruble or the Russian debt markets, um, you know, this would be a market that people at this point, given what's happening in the world, would pile in if there weren't any um, any any of these geopolitical considerations. The dividend yields, the type of industries that you can buy in the Russian market, they all play very, very well into everything that's happening in the value versus growth trade and the commodity trade. Um, and and, and you know, people have very, very limited positions in Russia right now because, because of this. Um, so that, that's oh. you know, just today, for example, right? Russian market, uh, MSCI Russia is up 5%. Um, the market itself on the year is down less than the S&P. Um, so that, that gives you a bit of an idea. 
I mean, the macro in Russia is probably the best macro in Yemen. And I'll stop there. Well, let's let's. Uh, I hate to shift gears, but we have to. Um, with with one comment, it's very interesting the way he's decoupled the Russian economy from dollar-based loans, and so he's, you know, that, that it's a it's a factor. Plus, you know, we can talk about and you know, obviously they got their energy supply, food supply, etc. Um, let's go to uh, Priya, who we we've met through Russia, um, and I just wanted to sh- shine a light. Uh, ha- having reconnected, I was so excited. Um, in fact, your family office benefited from Russian internet, right? Um, maybe just uh, introduce yourself. Yeah. So um, my Russia connection is very um, loose. I don't know much about Russia, and actually, it was so useful. Hearing that briefing, thank you. It's very informative. Um, my husband lived in Russia for oh, uh, nine years. He started um, a VC fund out there investing in tech. Um, and um, one of the companies he invested, he was an early investor of Yandex, which ended up sort of going on to be the Google of Russia and IPOing on the NASDAQ, actually. Um, and so obviously, over his time, he's built a lot of Russian connections, and actually that's how we've come to know Mark. Um, even though we never actually met in Russia, uh, we met in the US um, when my husband and I both were living there. So, um, so yeah, that's our Russian connection. And I haven't actually, I've only ever visited Russia, I've only been to Russia as a, as a visitor. And Jason, my husband, hasn't actually been back for quite a long time. Um, you know, I think this, the situation there, it makes it quite difficult to travel as well. Um, but it is it is a fascinating country, um, and you know it's it's I mean it's just crazy to think about what's happening right now. But um, but yes, um, moving on um, uh, from the Russia days, I am now back in the UK. Um, I spent the last sort of ten years um, working in luxury fashion. I knew Mark when I was living in DC. Um, I worked at the IFC World Bank um, for about five years. Um, and then did my MBA and post MBA have focused my career on in luxury fashion. So I worked in New York um, for a little bit for Chanel and then moved back to the UK and worked for Burberry for a very long time. Um, left Burberry a few years ago to start my own um, brand, which is what I've been uh, knee deep in um, for the last uh, three years. Um, we're uh, we're a sustainable um, online first lingerie brand that uh, launched right before the pandemic at the end of 2019 and have been on a crazy roller coaster journey since, as you can imagine, consumer brands and retail um, has been extremely volatile over the last sort of two and a half years. Um, but fortunately, we were on the right side of it because we were an online brand very much focused on bringing that online offering to um, bring an offering online to that customer through the pandemic. So that's been great for us. And we've also we're also B Corp. So we're a very sustainable brand. Um, we take that that part of what we do very seriously. And I think that's becoming more and more important in in the world, um, both from the sort of investor side, but also from the consumer side. Um, and we see that even our own consumers are, are asking more and more sophisticated questions around sustainability, um, around processes, around who we hire, who's behind the brand and all these all these kind of things. So 
I think um, probably it's it's touching on all your worlds as well. You know, I think impact investing is getting bigger. Lots and lots of funds dedicated to um, invite, you know, ESG um, uh, companies um, tackling climate, tackling tackling the planet. Um, I think fashion is one of the most polluting categories that's out there um, and is it's truly global. I mean, most countries have a garment industry and um, it can be, it's, you know, it's it's one of those things over the last 20 years where people have got very used to cheap, fast fashion that has really contributed to a bit of a crisis around the fashion industry. And the last sort of three or four, three to five years has seen a massive acceleration to um, the industry, businesses, um, big brands, small brands, um, consumers all waking up to this big problem that's now um, in the market. And, you know, I think for me, starting my own brand, it was really important to be starting it with that as a, as a central ethos. So it, that does, you haven't been in our community. <laughs> it's your first little debut. But yeah. those, those themes are are, uh, are consistent threads. Um, so I, it, you'll, I think you'll see more of, of Priya and you should her company's new data and part of it is it and i'll turn this over to you and maybe on this note gary did you know that 80 percent of all bras don't fit women today i'm I'm gonna have to say that's absolutely stunning news to me so so it sounds like a market opportunity yes yes i mean i think it's it's um it's a really big opportunity i think lots and uh, the the current um, the current industry has been failing women for a long time. Um, you know, I think that if you can imagine, uh, most people still have to go into a physical store um, in 2022 to get a bra fitting. Um, as you can imagine, not only is that completely inconvenient and not very modern, um, it's also just not very pleasant. Um, you know, we're all kind of very used to doing things. I mean, I'm sure the women in, in this community can relate you know, nobody wants to kind of go and stand in the changing room and get fitted. And it just feels so old fashioned. And then you translate that to the teenagers coming up. Um, you know, I have kids, I'm not not quite at teenage level, but we hear it all the time from mothers and daughters that, you know, you just wouldn't get the younger generation going through a process like that. Whereas, you know, bra fitting is very much like a like a dental hygiene check. You know, you should be doing it regularly. Your body changes regularly. And yet so many people just don't do it, which as a result means loads and loads of women are, are wearing fundamentally the wrong size or wearing something that doesn't fit them um, and is really just not fit for purpose. So it's it's definitely a problem that needs to be tackled. It's definitely a problem that needs to be modernized. Um, and that's what we're trying to do, which is why we've sort of very much led with an online first approach. 